one. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Splash Play. It is Friday. We still have Playmakers to cover. Episode five is what we have on tap today. And we also have a merciful end to the Julio trade rumor saga spags it is good to see julio in a new home i'm going to make the case for why this was the best possible location for him and i think that's what we said a few weeks ago but it is of course a playmaker's world as we march through the offseason and how can they turn a show about halftime into an entire episode we will find out here and maybe i'll even get pete some crack along the way so let's hit the <laughs> intro and let's get to it Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Splash Play, the fantasy football podcast for every game under the sun. And one that you could be following right now at Splash Play Pod, where we are following back everyone because that's the kind of show we are. We appreciate it very, uh, very much, you guys, as much as anything out there. So go follow us at Splash Play Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And I am Chris Spaggs, joined once again by the man who you are seeing once again on his YouTube channel. And, and I'm hanging out with all sorts of interesting characters, Peter. Uh, Peter Overset, I feel like seeing you with Cooter Doodle, which is not a person I was familiar with, but a very funny lady and i just saw the name initially and was like what is pete doing today like i didn't know if that was some game you were playing and i was like oh this is a person who's actually very talented at what she does yeah it does actually sound like a fun game to play like a new game you download from the apple iStore. uh cooter doodle is the hottest new game uh yeah no she's hilarious she she didn't get on twitter until it was like a year ago she said right when the pandemic hit she got on twitter uh and has already grown her following and is incredibly funny so yeah i did her podcast earlier in the week did randomizer show with her uh, last night. So yeah, if you haven't checked out Cooter Doodle, she's the best. <laughs> if you haven't checked out Cooter Doodle, then boy, you don't know what you're missing out on. But no, I was, I was actually genuinely impressive. I didn't see the episode you did with her yesterday, but that is, a, that's crazy. Just one year of time. And, and I think still, you know, when you are a funny woman, you're going to stand out. I think more than just a lot of the dudes banging their heads against the walls for the most part, doing the same bits over and over again. But I feel like that's like a pretty big ascension. That's, that's like pretty close to yours too. I feel like where you're, you're now an influencer across multiple categories and you too, I think, rising with the tide at the same times yeah like let, let's not try to uh say my rise was as fast as uh cooter doodles i i think i started on twitter I, i've been on twitter since 2009 and i started making content in like 2016 it's been a slow burn buddy Yep, just one year for Pete here making content. And now, wow, look at where he is. Truly a true. Honestly, we should all just pretend we've been doing this for one year. I think there used to be like valued expertise. And now it's just like, yeah, like I'm new on this. I'm the new kid in town. Like, like another John Mulaney bit. Well, I mean, it, and it's so true for everyone though, too. And they always say that, right? Like the overnight sensation. It's like even like stand-up comics that blow up. It's like, well, they were doing open mics, at, you know, for 20 years before their one thing like, you know, vaulted them. Yeah, so that's uh, definitely check out the videos here that Pete's done with Cooter Doodle. Definitely, uh, I, I like seeing new people always in the mix, and Pete definitely one of those guys that I'm very proud of for your your willingness to get new newer people and get people on the rise and bring them into the ecosystem. So hopefully, maybe we'll see you on this show at some point this year. But let's talk about our NFL headlines and guys. If you can hit the like button, whether you're watching on the Splash Play channel or on Pete's channel, likes help out every YouTube content creator out there get seen by more people. So hit that like button and subscribe to all the channels. And you also want to catch up with all of our Playmakers episodes there on a playlist on the Splash Play YouTube, so you can just go. 
go through and watch every episode along with us and uh, the journey that it is the to watch ESPN's Playmakers. But the big headline, Julio Jones traded the Titans sixth round pick going along with him for a second round pick and a fourth round pick. And I guess the first thing would be those rumors about the Titans getting offered a first round pick seem pretty unlikely now, given the fact that he did go for less than that. But or excuse me, the Falcons getting offered a, a first round pick seeming unlikely. But uh, Titans only went from a plus 2000 AFC odds or AFC odds leader uh, to win the championship uh, to plus 1600. So not the biggest jump for them with Julio. But Pete, I think this is a pretty big move and one where you just look at the numbers from last year and a direct comp to Corey Davis, where Corey Davis was running a, roughly the same amount of routes as Julio last year, thir- uh, 51 routes per game, 51 snaps per game compared to 52.4 for Julio. He's also running 27 routes per game compared to 33 for Julio. And the targets too, basically in line where Julio is getting 7.2 targets per game last year, 6.4 for Corey Davis. And I feel like if you're just going to upgrade the exact same position with Julio compared to Corey Davis, the guy who can also catch a deep ball better. This to me makes the Titans a lot better. doesn't solve their defense, but I think this trade was one that we had both liked when we talked about it earlier. And I think it was the move that had to be made. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's awesome for the Titans, and I don't even view it as upgrading over Corey Davis. I view it as upgrading over Josh Reynolds, which is what they yeah. were going to have if they didn't get that trade done. I mean, and that it's I, as we were saying, I think we were talking about it on uh, maybe it was the Swolecast, but it was like, I mean, think about defenses. You, if you don't have Julio, you just double team AJ Brown and you stack the box against Derrick Henry, and you make Ferkser, Josh Reynolds, Des Fitzpatrick, etc., beat you. That seems like a pretty good playbook for defenses. And now I don't know how you do it. Now you're in that territory where you got to pick your poison. And, and one of those guys, probably Julio, is going to get single coverage uh, for a lot of the game. And I don't expect the offense to change that much. They are going from Arthur Smith, who's now coincidentally the Falcons head coach, but uh, they just upgraded their tight ends coach to the offensive coordinator again, uh, which is how Smith got to that position in the first place for the Titans. So I expect things to be most of the same. And I think there are some rumors going around that Julio just wants to catch deep balls. And that was something else that jumped out to me too, that like Ryan Tannehill is one of the better deep ball throwers in the league. Didn't do it a whole lot last year, only 2.4 attempts of 20 plus yards, but a 110.8 deep, uh, deep ball rating is right there. You know, maybe a little bit closer to the middle of the pack than you'd like to see but on the cusp of the top 10 and I feel like you know him being able to get a guy not that Matt Ryan is any slouch or anything but getting more concentrated targets getting days where AJ Brown is going to be the focus for a defense I feel like Julio's fantasy upside probably higher in the situation than it would have been in Atlanta this year too yeah and I, I think I mean with with their offense and their commitment to the run like the play action is probably going to be a really big part of their offense and yeah I think you assuming you know his health holds up. I mean, I'm envisioning both AJ Brown and Julio who are kind of the more, I don't know, they they have a propensity for getting dinged up a lot in games. I'm already like imagining like Julio coming up, holding his hamstring after a deep ball. But yeah, if he can stay healthy, I think those looks are going to be there. Single coverage deep down the field and play action that he's going to be able to live there. Yeah, and I think, you know, the main thing for me, and I guess to why the AFC odds might not have moved that much, just going from plus 2,000 to plus 1,600 would be that um, the defense still not good. And I think, though, the one thing that he did give themselves as an out now is that this offense is potentially better, where if you stop Derrick Henry, uh, like happened in the playoffs last year, you know, limit him as best you can and then sort of keep the offense off the field and make it so they have to pass to keep from behind. That's actually a dangerous situation now where you have Julio and A.J. Brown out there. You have whatever Ferkser and Josh Reynolds to provide as sort of the, the ancillary forces there. But there's ways for them to win shootouts now against the Chiefs of the world. And I think that to me is the interesting part that, um, you know, the defense still going to be the sieve, going to be the one that gave up gigantic games to the Titans last or to the Texans last year. It's a really not great teams at portions of the year. But if the offense can keep up, like that's the main thing you need to see. And, uh, you know, I think really for the AFC, you just have to be prepared for shootouts. 
Yeah, and I think they I think a good comp for them is going to be the Seahawks, right? Where they want to run the ball. They have really good wide receivers. When they get in shootouts, they can play those shootouts and it's probably even better for their overall offense. Um but I think yeah, they're now versatile. If if they get up, they're still giving Derrick Henry 25 plus carries a game, but if they get down, like they can come in the second half and Ryan Tannehill can throw it a bunch and they'll have the talent to to get back into games. And the other big news item here, unless you have anything else to add about Julio, I feel like we've covered that about as well. And obviously it's going to be something we'll talk pretty much throughout the offseason here. No, I just can't believe I was looking at our old titles like on YouTube. And it was like every week it was like Julio Jones trade rumors update on Julio Jones. I'm like, <laughs> I'm just glad to be done with the Julio Jones stuff. Look, we've been on the Julio Jones beat, uh, <laughs> yeah. courageously tackling this beat for so long. But yeah, I just feel like it's really it's a, one offseason plot line. Like the Aaron Rodgers one, I guess, still hanging out over us all where there's rumors that maybe he might skip the season and play Jeopardy. I think Stephen A. Smith might not even be a rumor. It just might be one of those things he makes up off the top of his head, but saying he could probably just skip the season and be the Jeopardy host and still make $10 million. And I don't know why he would do that, but that's something that was in the ether today on ESPN. So uh, Julio Jones, one big subplot here that still could be interesting for the football part, but now the drama of the trade itself is gone. And it'll be number two, which I think is a fun number as well. Do you have any feel about that, by the way? The position guys go into single digit numbers now. Tom Brady was mad about that, but I still think it's more fun than not. Yeah, I I get I feel like receivers are so cool in general that they can pull it off. You know, like I feel like Julio Jones, he could pull off a single digit, could pull off 11, could pull off 88. Um, It's yeah. If you're a cool wide receiver, I think you can pull it off. I think, too, the one guy who made the biggest difference, too, is if Reggie Bush had been number five coming into the NFL, he would have been a Hall of Famer. There's no question about it. To me, it was going to double-digit numbers is really what ruined his entire professional career. And as a USC fan, you will never tell me otherwise. The one thing I do not like, uh, and this is more NBA, uh, the double zeros and the zeros, those tilt me so much. I do not like that. You mean like if they're on the same team? No, no, no. Just like your number is zero or double zero. Uh, I think he's like, like great. I like that. Actually, one of my NBA 2K, uh, my players has uh, double zeros. I feel like it's a fun number. Uh, I'm out on it. What, what's totally. the double zero? It's zero. You only need one. <laughs> yeah, but like the double zero is like edgy because <laughs> you got two zeros. It's not like, oh, you know, you're I don't actually I don't know why it is, but I there has to be. I don't know who the most famous double zero would be either because there, there's got to be one, but they're was all it, not was my Greg head. Ostertag. That's the name coming to I think my he was mind. 50. Okay. Um, no, no. Uh, no, I'm seeing a photo with him where he was double zero at one point. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was the double zero I was thinking of. Oh, there's actually a basketball reference list of players who've worn double zero. Oh, Nikhil Alexander Walker wears a uh, number zero now, I guess. So that's, that's one current player. Um, Avery Bradley has historically won, worn the number zero. Michael B. Yeah, there's enough guys. Honestly, a lot of zeros here. DeMarcus Cousins, a classic zero. There you go. Oh yeah, Clarkson. Yeah, Clarkson, a guy who's relevant in the playoffs right now, is a double zero. So it's funny. I guess the double zeros maybe more pronounced. It's a subculture, Pete, that you're just not tapped into yet. Yeah, and I don't want to be. Uh, I don't want to be a part of that club. Put a um, number but, on your back. Be a real hero. <laughs> I look. I support the double zeros out there. Hope they all have a good run. Jets wide receiver depth chart. I'm going to throw it to you because I know this one affects you the most. But Denzel Mims running with the second team does seem like uh, with the coaching change, they are gravitating more towards precise route runners, guys who are going to be, I guess, more of a West Coast style would be the best way to put it. But uh, give me your thoughts on this one, Pete, because I know you wrote it up this morning for the Fantasy Life newsletter that people should be subscribed to out there. 
Yeah, I had seen like a couple blurbs. It was like two days ago, everyone was talking about Elijah Moore being the best player at Jets camp. And then there was chatter yesterday about how Keelan Cole is going to be a big part of their plans. And I was like, wait, 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 Keelan Cole. So I started looking into it and I was like, oh, this is actually a really interesting depth chart for fantasy right now, partly because they're all so cheap. Like you can get all of them after round 10 in best ball drafts right now. I'm leaning toward, I think Zach Wilson is going to be a good fantasy player. Uh, I just think with him throwing it deep down the field and with him rushing a little, I think he's going to be pretty solid. So I'm trying to parse out where is the fantasy stuff here. And honestly, my biggest conclusion is I need to start taking Keelan Cole late in drafts because they have him running right now in three wide wide receiver sets as the outside wide receiver with Corey Davis. Jamison Crowder, I think, will have the inside track to that if he stays on the team. If he leaves, that paves the way for Elijah Moore, who's turning heads in camp. And then that kind of leaves my guy Denzel Mims on the outside looking in, but I'm still willing to bet on Mims a little bit. One, because I love him. And two, because early on in training camp, like of course the veteran is going to look better and have picked things up quicker. So I don't know. I I still think Denzel Mims offers more, you know, uh, um, more to the offense just as a vertical threat than those guys. But but we'll see. They're all very cheap, and I, I think you should be stacking them with Wilson uh, as secondary stacks and drafts right now. Is Keelan Cole getting close to the level of being a rival for you now where he's directly <laughs> yeah. inhibited LaVisca Chenault last year? This year, it's Denzel Mims. I don't know who he's coming for next year for you, but it does seem like two years in a row now, he's directly hurting guys that you've professed your love for on multiple occasions. Yeah, he's like the wide receiver version of like the pass catching back that is like really good in pass protection. So he stays on the field, but like, doesn't do that much else, you know, he's like a proficient route runner. He's not going to make mistakes, but is just ultimately not going to have the fantasy ceiling that we get excited about. Yeah. I want to see Denzel Mims catching, you know, 60 yard bombs from Zach Wilson, get out of here with this Keelan Cole stuff. But I'm telling you, I, I will start drafting Keelan Cole because he's free. And if he's a starting wide receiver for them, that's, that's something. Yeah, and I think it's still, it seems like everything is blowing towards this being more of a Niner style offense with um, obviously Robert Sala coming from the defensive side. Everything seems to be indicating that that's kind of what they're going to do. And there weren't a lot of deep balls going around. Granted, it was last year for the Niners where clearly they were um, afflicted by a lot of situations going on, but they haven't been the biggest deep ball throwing team. Maybe that's something that changes for them. But I think if they are going to take that archetype, it does sort of seem like it would be going more towards Cole and Corey Davis and those kind of guys. And uh, something to watch here. And I, I hope your guy Denzel Mims, he's young enough where he's, he's still got a shot in matter what the situation is, I would say. Uh, some of the QB situations out there also in the news, we'll hit on this, they'll jump to playmakers. Washington having reportedly an open competition for the starting job with Ryan Fitzpatrick, uh, Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen, and Steven Montez. And I feel like this is one of those things, Pete, where they're saying that right now, you want the young guys to have confidence, you want them to bring it as best they can. And maybe there's some pathway for a guy like Kyle Allen, who has been Ron Rivera's boy for a while now, or, or Taylor Heineke, who had the nice playoff showing, but this has to be fits a seam, right? Like if it's not fits a seam, everything that I thought about them, I think has to go out the window. Yeah, there's no way it's not his team. I mean, they just had him hold up the uh, the chalkboard with his, you know, first day back at camp uh, thing. So, I mean, he's clearly their guy. Yeah, I, I do think it'd be smart for the team to be prepared for one of those guys to step in at some point. I mean, I don't want to say it's inevitable, but the way Ryan Fitzpatrick plays and at his age, like he's likely to get hurt. And you definitely want to have one of the better backup quarterbacks in the league when Ryan Fitzpatrick is your starting quarterback. So I, I do think it makes sense for those guys to be ready. I don't know what how that manifests. Maybe they're getting more first team reps and stuff during practice. But yeah, there's no way Ryan Fitzpatrick isn't the starting quarterback week one if he's healthy. 
Yeah, and I think, too, that's that's your best foot forward here, even if Fitz does get hurt or if he does regress and have those really bad interception days that we know he's capable of. Like, he's the guy who unlocks Terry McLaurin and gets him to the next level. He's the one who opens up um, more, I think, of Antonio Gibson as well, just being able to use him and being able to create the deep ball opportunities are going to open up more underneath for Antonio Gibson. So I don't know how Fitz doesn't start, but definitely something to keep an eye on here, barring something uh, strange coming out of the camp. Um, and then the last report here for QB is Mac Jones, supposedly very far off Cam Newton. is another one in the Fantasy Life newsletter this morning where you – Quoted Ben Volen, uh, one of the New England reporters who's been on the beat. And Mac Jones, it feels like it's going different ways where you hear some reports like, oh, he's looking good in camp. Everybody loves him. People are really impressed by him. And then you get ones like this from a, a team insider, insider who's been there for years and sort of you know knows the infrastructure really well. I do think it seems less likely now that Mac Jones gets in the beginning of the year, but a Cam Newton injury, not the most far-fetched thing either. So I'm not fully writing him off, but I guess it looks like we are more likely now to get Cam Newton as that starter for week one. Yeah, and I'm not, with this example, I'm not comparing Mac Jones to Justin Herbert, but it does feel a little like that situation last year where all the talk was, no, Terod Taylor's our quarterback. It could be deep into the season until Justin Herbert takes over. Of course, Terod Taylor gets hurt, gives Justin Herbert the opportunity. He flashes and never relinquishes the job. So like you said, the way Cam plays, there could be openings earlier in the season for Mac Jones. But yeah, I don't think based on what how they're talking that he just from performance and play alone is going to earn the starting job yeah i still think mac jones you know we talked about him when we were previewing things we had that show with josh norris to talk about some of these guys and mac jones system qb in college i think it grades out well to be a system qb now and that's more than i think cam newton showed last year but uh, i am still a mac jones believer i think he landed in the best possible situation for himself and as a guy he should be able to beat out at some point in cam as long as he keeps doing the work but let's talk about playmakers and guys again hit that like button if you can make sure to subscribe to the channels pete's channel and the splash play channel and also follow at splash play pod we appreciate that a bunch and we do follow you guys back on there so if you're trying to pad your own follower counts, it's one way to do it uh, while also supporting the show. But ESPN Playmakers Episode 5, this one is called Halftime, and it is quite literally all about halftime. And I'll give you the floor, Pete, if you have any overall overarching ideas about the episode, because there's a lot of action in this one, but a lot of a lot of much ado about nothing, I guess is the best way to put it for what the episode was. Yeah, I know. I do think like to table set this conversation, we have to talk about how it was framed. Their plot device here of this entire episode taking place over 20 minutes of halftime. But I, I was saying in the discord by like the laws of physics alone, the amount of things that happened, uh, there is no way it is humanly possible for all of these things, even if they were happening concurrently to happen. There is just no way that DH could be fiending for drugs, go make a call in the bathroom or whatever, get an IV, then Jerome has enough time to drive to the stadium, then they're able to get the drugs, then he's heaving and then staring at the drugs, do drugs, and get back in time to play within 20 minutes. Within 20 minutes, Spags, this entire thing boggled the mind. I think this was like one of those cases where I was writing the show, like they were also doing a 24 spec script at the same time because yeah. that show was very in vogue at the time. They're like, how can we get a running clock going without completely ripping it off? And this is the most natural way. But I agree, a little far-fetched even by playmaker standards. And um, as Pete talked about here, the show opens with a lot of doctors and medical professionals basically doing some fun Darren Rovell-style numerology about how many medical people they have in a locker room at any given time. And then we open with Coach and another coach 
coach who isn't the offensive coordinator, but we later learned is kind of gunning for that job. Talked about being thrown by the other team's offensive approach. And then this is a quote that got me, and I hope you caught it too, Pete. Uh, he said, little shit put eight men in the box. He hasn't done that all year. And I feel like really shocking pivot by the team to put eight men in the box against a team who runs 75 times a game and throws twice. Yeah, it's like maybe, just maybe you need to threaten the pass once. Maybe you need to introduce a wide receiver, just one wide receiver. Every week, Spags, I beg this show to give me one single pass catcher. They refuse to do it. So yes, the teams are going to stack the box against you. See, but you got lucky. This, I mean, not to spoil what's coming up here, but you not only got one pass catcher episode, you got two. And one of them is going to be, I remember the second I saw this guy, I was like, oh, this guy gets a lot of screen time down the stretch. Uh, but two wide receivers, Pete, including a, a scrappy white wide receiver, which I feel like honestly kind of ahead of the curve. Yeah, I mean, in one that is only able to play at peak efficiency if he has his necklace with him. <laughs> yeah. A proud religious man is, is Gerwicks, I believe is his name, but we'll talk about that. Coach deeply concerned by the volume of the players on the injury report, a defensive <laughs> player we haven't seen before. And this is an episode where really we are halfway through the season now and they are just throwing guys at us. A uh, Ray is the defensive player's name and uh, he's being told he nearly twisted his finger off Ray and he replies, then untwisted. And Ray <laughs> is that hand. Pete, I, I've no, no, I haven't seen a lot of mangled hands in my life. I'll admit that, but that hand might be the most mangled hand I've ever seen in both fiction or reality. Yeah, that was impressive. Uh, do, I assume that was done with prosthetics or some kind of. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we also just have to talk about, uh, again, the NFL, extremely violent sport, injuries, very common, um, not trying to underplay that. But they had the amount of injuries that a team would generally have over the course of, I don't know, eight games, yeah. all condensed into one single half. There were gurneys coming, and you knew they wanted to set us up for this at the beginning. They're like, this team has eight medical doctors, 16 carts. Like They're like, I'm like we get it. These are all going to be used in this show today. Yeah, the dentist. We didn't see the dentist on this episode, but he was there somewhere waiting for his chance to pop up. Uh, McConnell also had his shoulder injured, had it popped into place. Uh, I've, again, just really unhealthy joints for these guys. I feel like maybe some supplements might be in order. And then DH threw up on the field. The trainer wants to give him an IV. And then even Leon somehow hurt his knee, even though he doesn't play, which I thought was interesting. Like he, he's been so mad that he's never getting on the field. And apparently he gets on the field, hurts himself in one play. And uh, the offensive lineman, I thought this was interesting too, that the offensive lineman who DH emotionally abuses pretty much in every episode. Yeah that we talk about a lot here. Now he's Leon's boy. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, Leon. I'm so worried about you and all that. Just a great guy, but also a guy who just needs to choose his friends a little better. Yeah, that that really threw me too. I was like, wait, now, now you're his guy? And then on top of that, he had one thing Basically, every line out of his mouth this entire episode was about the x-rays. He kept asking the doctor about the x-rays and uh, kept wondering about updates about the x-rays. Then the x-rays came and there was the, uh, you know, the bait and switch on him. His entire plot uh, device this episode were x-rays. Yeah, he is very much his brother's keeper in a way that like almost a little bit annoying still, like kind of like a nagging mom where he just was very much in the way you're a helicopter parent really is his offensive lineman, but he gravitates towards these guys who are not the best old chick while Leon's on the table mutters something about how <laughs> Leon deserves it because of him being sucked into the drama with Leon and his wife. And my first thought with this that I guess it does get a little bit cleaner by the end of the episode, but it was just a bummer to me that the black, the bad Leon plot line is now getting into the locker room because the, the football scenes have been the one place we've been mostly safe from the Leon just yeah drama soap opera stuff and now it being there like again ends well but at this point i was like motherfucker more of this well and the way they set it up he starts doing the voiceover thing where he's like it's really hard to support you and it's like okay yeah you know this information about your friend and your teammate and this is going to complicate your kind of working relationship 
Um, and clearly, if if he were to approach him about this, it would not be in the locker room at halftime. Okay, this is a mm-hmm. conversation. We've, we've already seen them hanging out a ton at each other's houses, going on little errands together in their car. I mean, you're going to do this anywhere else. So I just loved how it was like, oh man, this is going to torment Olshik for a while as he still debates it. And then it was like four seconds later, you deserve this in the locker room at halftime. Yeah, a bit of a strong one there, even if he is clearly, you know, very sympathetic to the wife, to Robin situation and all that. But definitely, yeah, it seemed a little out of character from what we know of Olchik. Um, And then this is weird, too, because now I'm going through my notes and this was not presented as a flashback. Like it was almost presented as though we were back in the game. But I guess this happened before a flashback to the first half with the QB coach. And, and Pete, I don't know if you got to read, but the guy who was in the on the offensive coordinator booth, who ends up being the the cuck boy slash Aaron boy <laughs> for McConnell, like he's the QB coach, right? Or is he just a team manager? Because if he's a team manager, why is he up in the booth? Yeah, I wasn't sure. That was like one of the weirdest scenes ever with him just again, mid game, uh, instead of focusing on helping your team who's down 21 to six, uh, you're scoping out chicks with binoculars. Yeah, I I almost got like the vibe. He was like, like a you know how in for college coaches they have like the grad assistants that are like, like part of the team. Like basically he had like a like almost an intern level vibe to him. Yeah, he was the uh, overall definitely presented himself like an intern, even if he is a professional person. But as Pete mentioned, he was using binoculars to point out three women of different hair colors <laughs> with estimates of their cup sizes. And this was somehow enough for McConnell to uh, make his choice. And he's having McConnell window shop for hookups. Initially, I thought it was like, oh, this coach is being a creep or whatever, because like yeah. McConnell, like he's doing a bit. And it's like, no, he's literally just uh, looking for people. And McConnell, I guess, to his credit, very trusting with this guy where he's like, yeah, like, hey, if that's the one you think sounds good, Cameron Diaz vibe love it i guess mcconnell they have a system it seems i also love how right before that uh before they got distracted by the ladies uh we learned that mcconnell threw another interception into double coverage like that is just this guy's (laughs) specialty and it's like okay so maybe we're kind of looking at photos of the coverage now and trying to avoid this mistake for apparently the 90th time but instead you are going to scope chicks in the stands that's the decision we've made here that's maybe that's the West Coast offense style they've been pushing so much. <laughs> it's all about looking for women with a West Coast look for McConnell to bang. And I guess a, at an Italian restaurant later on in the day, uh, turns out DH is puking from crack withdrawals. DH calls it the super flu, which I feel like was something people called AIDS at one point, which kind of threw me for a loop. But it is a crack based super flu. And um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about DH puking. We're obviously going to see a lot more of him. But um, my notes go immediately to Gerwig's next. So I want to give you your chance to chime in on DH and his IVs and his, and his super flu from crack. Well, the funny thing is, is I had a note from the very beginning of the episode where when we first see DH and we can tell he's like a little distressed, but we don't have enough information yet to go what's going on. And you see him looking in his bag. And I I wrote a joke in my notes, DH looking for crack in his bag. He was literally looking for crack in his bag. I just like, I can't believe the implication of that, of him bringing crack to the locker room. Like I can buy the crack addiction. But the concept of bringing it to the locker room to like smoke somewhere or in the bowels of the stadium is batshit crazy specs. Uh, yeah, I get it. I, you know, I think he's clearly been untouchable with the team. So if anybody were to have crack, DH would be the most likely candidate to do so. But I agree, you know, generally not the professional vibe I'm looking for. Pete, I know you work from home and I I would still guess that at this point, even though you are a guy working for yourself, probably not a lot of crack around your home office. You know, there isn't. And that's actually been a big shift for me, you know, working from home, you know, at my previous day job, one of the things that got me through was just a, a quick hit of the crack cocaine uh, in the bathroom. But now that I'm home, yeah, it's a lot harder to come by.
We then meet uh, one of the wide receivers, a white guy with a number 83 who we learn is Gerwick. We haven't seen before, but actually, so was he wasn't the guy that we saw earlier in the year who they just didn't identify who had that one uh, that one pass that McConnell sailed over by like 20 feet, right? Yeah, I don't know. I guess I should. I think I deleted that screenshot when I pulled it up. I, I would have to go back to the Zapruder film and uh, <laughs> see if that was him. But yes, I should now officially say thank you, writers, for introducing an actual pass catcher here. I think you're going to be less happy with the future. I don't want to spoil it, but I think you're going to be less happy that they brought this guy into the mix of the future subplots. But we do spend a lot of time with Gerwitz. We'll get some more of him in a second. Ray, the defensive player we also met for the first time. I think this is uh, like really unique to this show too, where we're just getting characters thrown in all of a sudden now. We're supposed to care about Ray. And like, granted, when you have a guy with a mangled hand, you're going to care more. But it is odd that we're spending all this time with Gerwitz and Ray after maybe Gerwitz was like hinted at in one episode, but that was it. But not a single scene with these guys. And now they are apparently core parts of what we're supposed to care about it truly makes it look like they were writing the in producing these episodes like one at, at a time there was no storyboard for playmakers there was no like these are our characters these are the plot lines we're going to develop it's just like nope episode five might as well introduce these guys with no backstory we don't need to get you emotionally invested in them whatsoever uh we're just going to introduce them and uh he has a 50 50 chance to get amputated hope you care about that playmakers watchers <laughs> Yeah, like you guys know out there, if you're watching this show that or watching Playmakers at Home in 2003 or watching this show now that normally amputation is bad. So I think that's just the <laughs> implication. It's like we have to care because this is a bad thing. Uh, and the doctor for once wants to do the right thing. But Ray is angrily insistent. So the other team doc ends up seeing him. And after giving him some warnings, Ray won't back down. So the team doctor puts him in a cast. And I feel like this doctor, too, we've talked to him. We talked about him before the episode with Olchek in particular, where, um, you know, there was some stuff. The just the coach wants guys to get out into the field and all of that. This team doctor, I feel like he ended up doing it, but I, I still feel like I was surprised to see them give this much resistance, given the team's previous approach of make these guys play no matter what the situation is. Yeah, and there was a great line here where he said, I'm not going to miss a play because my little pinky is bent out of shape, uh, which is funny because I normally hear bent out of shape, you know, more as, uh, you know, a phrase, uh, but not in the literal sense of being actually bent out of shape. So I appreciated that. that <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think he's emotionally bent out of shape. <laughs> yeah. Having a tough day. Uh, Willis in the chat, by the way, saying that he thinks it was Gerwick's earlier. I do remember it being like a vaguely Polish slash Eastern European sounding name, but I, I, so I'm willing to believe that. And Willis is our splash play account. So if anybody's going to know and be able to keep tabs on this, this confusing depth chart for the Cougars, uh, it's probably Willis. Um, Steve, the offensive coordinator is mad when he sees the other coach who we saw earlier in the show is baffled by, eight-man boxes um he sees this other coach drawing up plays without him we then flash back again because playmakers boy loves flashbacks we flash back to the owner forcing steve lyles the offensive coordinator onto the coach the owner wants a west coast offense and the coach takes uh steve's side and he ends up not modifying the game plan and i feel like this is one of those things pete where it was like clearly some sort of heavy like oh the coach is doing the right thing for once or he's trying to do the right thing and it just doesn't come off like that because they spend so little time on it we've had no indication of this throughout the year and the coach has also been such a douche throughout the year that I wasn't ready to like him yet. And I feel like this was an episode where they're trying to make you feel that. Yeah. And just another scene where it's just like, okay, half the team is injured. Um, and the coaches, uh, my assumption would be in kind of the way the NFL works is that they have these playbooks with kind of all the plays that they would maybe run. Uh, and sure you have audibles and variations off of those, but these plays have been practiced throughout the week. The team knows the type of plays that are going to be used. And yet these guys here are drawing up brand new plays on a whiteboard 
at halftime of a game when half of their team is injured. This was another thing I was uh, having a hard time wrapping my head around. Yeah, I could see you you putting in variations of things, but I would agree putting in all new plays with apparently a different philosophy seems <laughs> yeah. unlikely. But uh, you know that's 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 playmakers for you. It's a fast moving game out there. Um, we are again moving around a ton. Leon asks Olshik if he has a problem with him. Olshik then reveals how Leon's wife Robin told him that Leon hit her, and uh, that's well, well we'll deal with more of that in a second. Dh grows tired of taking an IV for fluid and instead goes to the bathroom to call a guy for crack. The guy has to get to the players' lounge. This is something that really threw me for a loop. Has to get to the players' lounge in five minutes with crack, yeah. which like, look, I, I live in a legal marijuana state. I could tell you I have not once gotten, I haven't even gotten Postmates in five minutes yet. DH, he's a VIP. I get he's got more money to throw around. A five minute crack delivery, Pete. I'm going to say that's unreasonable even if it were Domino's doing crack. Yeah, unless this guy Jerome... Like, you know, he's like the Uber driver that, but he's the crack driver that just hangs out in front of the stadium specifically to do crack runs to the players. Like there's no way this is even possible. My other favorite part about this is DH says he has to go to the bathroom. Um, and so he does a call, but because like whatever, for whatever reason, the cameraman didn't want to go into the bathroom. DH doesn't shut the door. So he's like, I have this very private call I need to go make where I'm going to ask for crack in the locker room, but so the cameraman can still see me, I'm not going to shut the door. Yeah, it's a weird acting choice, I would agree. Perhaps not the most realistic, but uh, DH nearly pukes on his way back to his car because of crack, and then his crack is clearly not good for you. I think it's the main takeaway here. Really, I don't know if it's that crack's not good for you. It's that not having crack is not good for you. So maybe that's the part to take away. Um, Leon is back with Robin in a flashback, saying that Temptation's my girl, uh, except using Robin instead of my girl instead to win her back. And uh, she lies about seeing Olchek, and Leon knows she's lying. And um, I don't know if you had thoughts about him uh, doing weird Al parody songs about the temptations of my girl, but that's, I thought it was a nice moment amidst all the domestic violence. No, that wasn't a nice moment. It was one of the most cringy things about this entire episode. And I love how we're still like, we're not even, we, all of this doesn't happen if he just agrees to go to couples therapy with her, but he's going to keep trying the flowers. And now he's going to do, you know, karaoke with the temptations is like, is it, it's like, this isn't about courting her or wooing her over with like romantic overtures. Like you need to go get help for your temper with her in couples therapy. So again, we're back to the thing. Men will literally do karaoke versions of the temptations instead of going to therapy. Look, I like his parody songs. I'd be curious to hear an album of Leon's parody tracks designed to win his wife over after accidentally throwing her down a not a flight of stairs, uh, uh, several stairs, I think, to keep it fair to him. Uh, Gurwitz sees the- Please don't keep it fair. You are constantly a Leon apologist in this story. <laughs> I just, I feel like, again, I just feel like it's one of these things, one bad situation gets worse and worse by the week, and, and it will continue to do so, which we'll see later on. Gurwitz sees DH thrown up and offers to get whatever DH needs from his car. DH is not in good enough shape to even buy crack, and then Gurwitz Gurwitz comes back with his lucky chain and sees DH curled up in a pool of his own vomit, left with the choice to buy DH drugs or not. And I, you know, like I have to say for Gurwitz right away, like I think I wrote in the notes somewhere here, but uh, Gurwitz, one of our awards we give away every week, the cool bro of the week. He is undefeatable this week. Like, boy, nice guy, supportive, clearly does not like crack, not a fan of religious man, but he is there for his teammate. And that is that is as ride or die as you can get. There were two things about Gerwich and like what set up this plot line from earlier that I want to mention. First of all, like he's panicking looking for his necklace. Why wasn't he looking for that before the game? He he said yeah. that that like the implication would have been like if he lost it while playing or something and then he needs to find it. But to me, it seemed like he just now realized he was playing poorly and needed it. 
maybe it was that he like he just didn't wear it for the day and then was like, oh, I'm playing poorly. And then he connected the dots, I guess. But if it's that important to you, I would agree. That's probably like, you know, for the rituals, you know, that's one of the things you would probably have from day one if you are a superstitious guy. And then another just hilarious moment when he goes up to DH to ask him if he had seen his necklace. And DH just goes like this and flips him <laughs> off. I just a good absolutely <laughs> lost it. It's like, little do you know, DH, you're going to be begging you, begging this guy to go get you crack. But right now, fuck you, buddy. Don't care about your necklace. Yeah, not even get him crack. Uh, light the crack for him. But well, it's, I don't want to spoil it. It's it honestly a, a really touching moment with him lighting crack for DH. Um, he, the QB coach, though, we are back to him. He or whoever it is, Phil is his name, brings the girl Dee Dee, who is being scattered through binoculars to McConnell's meetup spot. And she's very excited. The QB coach is also excited because they're from the same town, which I wrote down as Lansing, Michigan, though, honestly, it might not be that. He's very excited. He's immediately launching into stories about some local teacher who lets students smoke weed at his apartment. And then he shares a a special moment to him where the weed teacher told him, Phil, your college material. And this is clearly an important moment to him, as he indicates in a second. But uh, the second the girl sees McConnell coming out, she immediately ditches this guy, doesn't care about the same town, doesn't care about this teacher. She just wants that QB dick. And um, I just womp womp would be what I wrote down. <laughs> this is another one of just the most, uh, almost even more than Jerome being able to get cracked to them during the span of the halftime, like the walk that they make within the bowels of the stadium they take an elevator there's even a point where they enter kind of like the lower concourse area and they stop to just have a longer conversation it's like you guys are trying to facilitate a very quick conversation at halftime between her and the quarterback of the football team who also just had what did he have to get was is it like his shoulder popped back in yeah or yeah he had a dislocated shoulder I yeah think. so oh and not to mention all of that um they just stop and have a conversation reminiscing about high school during this. And then this guy is offended that she wasn't like falling for his story. It's like, dude, your job was literally to connect her to the quarterback. Why are you acting like you just got cucked in this situation, bro? Yeah. His literal job is to be cuck boy. That in fact, if he's not the QB coach, that might be his actual job title is just team cuck boy. And I think I agree. Like he was getting a little bit above his pay grade with that. And um, clearly Cameron Diaz, not, not for him was for, for McConnell. Um, the offensive coordinator comes in hot and here's the scene. That I think you can also say right away, not going to be in 2021 calling everyone gay slurs. The one that we all know uh, was very popular at this time frame, And he berates all the players coach hears from one of the injured pass catchers who we another pass catcher we saw who actually caught a passer in the game don't know if he's a tight end or, or a wide receiver but he says that steve wiles is a prick and then we go to the offensive coordinator also berating the injured player and coach forces him to leave the locker room or he'll have security do it and again coach standing up here but steve wiles a, a complete <laughs> asshole out of nowhere and also like so he comes in the first line he says is that and you're like again watching in 2021 you're like holy shit dude but then from there his insults get you know, progressively more vague and arguably less threatening. Like, yeah, that's that's a very tough, macho asshole intro there. Uh, and then he's like, he's like, you know what? I'm I'll, I'll tie you guys to a chair and make you make you watch the game film. And we're like, yeah, whoa, yeah, real scary stuff there. But like after that lead-in, I thought it was just gonna get even worse than that. But uh, yeah, it's also funny too. This thing where the one guy is like, I'm starting to think this guy's a prick. <laughs> and going back to like the character building stuff, I mean, I guess the only stuff we've seen is his kind of back and forth with McConnell. They had the, uh, you know, the him using the cart and stuff like that. But we really didn't it seem like a pretty big leap from him going from just like concerned coach to bigoted prick. 
there's no buildup to anything that happens on the show, yeah. which I think is the main issue is that there's never like, I guess maybe DH is crack usage. Like that's the one thing that they've, you know, let progress over time. And it's like, oh, now he's not doing crack. He needs it real bad. Um, but besides the crack part, like there's no indication at all. that Steve Lyles is an asshole. If anything, I think in that scene, it was more like, hey, like use your brain, like, ah, like, you know, whatever, like a coach would do in any sort of sports movie. So I agree. Like there was no indication he was like a bad dude. There's no indication that he was like a coach, uh, an owner force thing onto the coach. I just feel like they could have, it would have taken quite literally in a show with a million scenes per episode would have taken two scenes over the course of the previous four episodes to be like, Hey, the Steve Lyles guy, something's up with him. And instead he's just, Nope, dropping F bombs and being a shithead immediately. And I get that happens probably, you know, that's a kind of a classic Todd Haley type. If we're going to compare him to somebody in real life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was, uh, an absolutely wild scene. And again, the amount of things that are happening here at halftime, right? I mean, they, okay. First, we had all the injuries. Then they were uh, drawing up an entirely new playbook. And now he's coming in and yelling at everyone about their play. So, I mean, this is, it's impressive what they accomplish in the span of, at this point, I think we were 12 minutes in, I believe, based on what was Flash. Yeah, and then uh, really the arena travel and people in the chat pointing out your knowledge of stadiums, but that was something that jumped out to me too. Even with the crack dealer, where like the crack dealer could have been in the front row of the game, <laughs> and he wasn't getting to the players' lounge that fast. But I, I agree. Like the biggest leap here is really just stadium inefficiencies. Like there's security checkpoints ten times over. Just getting through those, you're halftime's long gone. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, it covered a lot of ground. I, I feel like they, at least, if maybe they made it a thirty minute halftime. I feel like maybe I could have bought this just like a little bit more, but man, when they kept flashing it there, uh, I was like, wait, this has to be like one minute left in halftime. And they're like, nope, 12 minutes left. Yeah, they should have made it like a national TV game, though. I, I yeah. would actually would have loved to see what they would call their version of Monday Night Football, because I bet it would have been something like completely derivative, but also like off the beaten path where it have been like Tuesday football matchup. <laughs> yeah. the same way Are you ready that. for some Tuesday matchup football? <laughs> Leon confronts old chick about Robin lying about where she's been. And then I guess he just put this all together in his head throughout because he's flashing back to his, his temptations parody song. And he punches him in the face when old chick says that, uh, that Leon's wife spent the night with him though. It is unclear at this point, whether it was a sexy night or a supportive one. And I guess I get Leon clearly a hothead as we've established enough times now, but I feel like I would have not assumed that my friend had slept with my wife. Even if they had spent the night together, I would assume it's tied to the clearly massive dark cloud. that's hanging over our relationship. <laughs> yeah. Um I still I still also one other thing about Olshik too listening to his own uh therapy tapes was that right before this happened too or did we already I think so yeah I think that was what he had on. Yeah. Um so the the whole kind of misunderstanding about the Olshik and the Robin situation is absolutely absurd. Like the fact that he thought like didn't Leon thought he slept with her when he said she spent the night at yeah. my house. Was that the implication here? I believe so. Yeah. It's just like, there's no reason he needed to communicate it in that way. Opposed to saying like, yeah, she wanted to come over and talk to me to talk to me about what happened. But he's like, yeah, yeah she spent the night. <laughs> it's like, of course, of course he's going to start swinging. 
Yeah, maybe that's old chick because old chick is a bit of a weirdo with that stuff. Like maybe that was him sort of like projecting a little bit of like, hey, like I'm protecting her or whatever, or you know, like because he's seeing his dad and Leon. I don't know. There's probably some shit going on there that you could justify, but I agree. It could have easily said that better. And at the end of the day, at the end of the episode, they had a, a scribe to get to a mix up, but still, um, yeah, could have been better worded. And Leon could have just not punched the guy immediately, would be the other thing. Uh, Gerwitz is now meeting up with the drug dealer, Jerome. And I also like that you, I wrote down, tells the drug dealer, and you're like, Jerome, like you're on a first day basis with the crap dealer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I guess you respect the drug dealer. Gerwitz does not. He tells the drug dealer, I don't respect you, but DH is lying <laughs> in the hallway and he needs the stuff. And the drug dealer, who is a drug dealer, seems awfully sanctimonious about taking money for drugs. <laughs> I think that was something that... So tell me, Pete, how do you feel about Jerome's motivation here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm just more impressed with kind of the the speed and the efficiency that Jerome's operation uh, runs at. <laughs> And yeah, man, you know, poor Gerwitz just having a complete crisis here. Uh, And hang on, did we miss this? Like, I might have missed this when I was watching because then he does have his necklace on. Did I miss him finding the necklace? He had initially went to his car, got the necklace, then came back, saw DH in the vomit, and then was like, oh, fuck, now I have to go buy this guy crack. So he had already made his run and then came back. I miss, I missed that that part. So yeah. So again, covering a lot of ground uh, during this halftime. And I just absolutely loved the shots of dh there and they just keep doing the close-ups on gershwich or whatever and he's just like this is i I, this is the worst thing i've ever experienced in my life like i shouldn't be a part of this but uh i think it's god's will for me to give dh this this crack right now he's a a missionary he's a crack missionary (laughs) yeah it is uh robin at this point also tells one of her friends about the leon situation the son overhears and runs out of the house i think the less said about this the better though she does some nice mom stuff he she goes over to talk to the kid in the hammock i don't know whatever leon finds out from the team doc that he tours acl again while dh is literally being carried to his crack by gerwitz who could barely bring himself to watch dh tear through the crack like a wounded animal. Then Gerwitz offers to hold the lighter for DH. And again, the cool bro of the week award going to Gerwitz is lighting crack for a man. I think Gerwitz, I have to presume, not a man who's done crack before, but he gravitates towards it right away. And honestly, that's what I want. If I'm a teammate, I want a guy who is going to be so ride or die for me that he will light my crack when I cannot stand up. It is kind of incredible how destructive of a presence DH is on literally everyone in his life. And like every teammate that tries to help him out, he just gets in trouble somehow, even with Leon, you know, he was going to maybe, uh, get traded. Uh, and, and he doesn't partly because of DH. So, I mean, he just, he ruins everyone's life in this locker room, but it's worth it because he gets a hundred yards on 25 carries a game. He's, yeah, he's doing a good job. He's a great volume carrier, if nothing else. Uh, Old Shake approaches Leon and clears the air about the Robin situation while Leon is more focused about coming back from another ACL tear. And we'll talk more about that in a second. QB coach guy Phil, or whatever he is, is being cucked by McConnell, has to get the girl's address and phone number to get her to dinner with him and make the reservations. And it turns out that she also hated Phil's beloved teacher. And uh, Phil's life just seems like a downer, but also it feels outside of his jobs that he should have to not only get this girl's name and address and whatever and number, but he has to make the reservations for the Italian restaurant. Like what a bitch. And I don't get how he's in the booth. If he's that level of bitch. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't follow that either. The, that whole thing, uh, was, was very confusing for me. Uh, the, the push and pull between Lyles and that, and that call again, it was this whole thing where it was like, you have to set that up with more of a backstory of like, there's tension between, the coaches, their stylistic differences with kind of what they want to do, all of this stuff. And it's just like, you can't throw this at us in the middle of a halftime and expect us to care about this subplot. 
Yeah, Sapid's moving on to the other coach, uh, Lyles here, saying he's running the offense, doesn't want him in the locker room. Um, and then the owner is calling the coach at the same time, and the coach is mad because his guys are all hurt. It's a locker room full of warriors, and Lyles didn't show respect. And then the coach decides that his big his big stand for himself is he's going to introduce a counter trap, a screen, and a bubble screen into the playbook, which admitted, you know, I'm not an NFL coach. I we do, you know, cover this pretty well, study the NFL deeply. I feel like a bubble screen, a screen, and a counter trap would not be out of place in a West Coast offense, Pete. I don't know if you have any feel for West Coast offense. I know you fashioned yourself as a young Bill Walsh for many years, but um, screens, I feel like, are an important part of a West Coast offense. It's all about short passes. Yeah, no, it, that actually seems like it would uh, you know, perfectly go into what they're doing, and clearly they need to mix things up. Like anything that throws people off the center of the I formation and the ball going to DH every single play, I think is a benefit. Literally any other play than running it up the middle sounds great. Yeah, I think they really just, they moved into the 1950s, it seems, by adding some screens to the offense, so good for them. Leon learns it is, in fact, someone else on the team who has an ACL tear, which just seems uh, like very incompetent medicine, but I guess a lot of injuries here in the locker room. Leon calls Robin and tells her the good news, but she doesn't seem very happy, even though they do exchange Leon-initiated I love yous. And here's a, a theory that I have now, Pete, and I don't know if we're going to have enough time to get through it, but is, the, so... I know, I know I've been a little more defensive of Leon. I do think the way the show is written in this scene in particular, that the domestic abuser is not Leon. It's in fact football. That is the domestic abuser. And that's like, that explains her response and why like she had some relief when he was hurt, but now doesn't. Cause I think it's like the football thing is what she's ascribing all the bad stuff to. So I don't know if you're with me on this one. This is a, an out of left field analogy, but I just thought that scene was maybe informative of why they're spending so much time dwelling on this. Yeah, I mean, I think football is what causes all of these things, right? Football causes you to do crack. It causes you to, uh, you know, do domestic violence. I, I think football, that's what the overall goal of this show is to show you of what happens uh, to you in your brain and your wants and desires once you play national football. Yeah, and Leon tells Olshik, the speaking of uh, things getting mixed up, the x-rays got mixed up, a lot of things got mixed up today, and they exchange a pound. And Olshik, I guess, taking a punch in the face pretty well. He's, he's given punches in the face in the locker room, too. But I feel like he's in the hunt for a cool bro candidate. It's tough to pass Gerwitz in this episode, but I feel like Olshik uh, is still, to me, one of, not a show with a lot of likable characters, but I feel like Olshik's probably the most likable out of all of them. Yeah, Olshik is still likable. Obviously, he should have handled this stuff behind closed doors. Like, you just don't need to do that in the locker room. It just makes no sense. Um, I, yeah, that that whole... I'm just so done with all of the Robin scenes, and this whole subplot is just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and, and I'm done with it, Specs. And then uh, the last scene here, before the game starts back up, Coach has Gerwitz say a few words, and it turns out his role is as a prayer leader for the team. In the tunnel, then Gerwitz gives uh, Gerwitz gives DH a pound and also gives him the special chain, and the episode ends with the clock back to zero because the game is restarted and we see no football action. And I guess uh, Gerwitz, uh, again, a character not to spoil things, but who will be more important in episodes coming up, but a likable character, I feel like, out of the writing too, like I think Olshake is probably to me the most likable character in the, in the show so far. But I think in terms of the writing, like Gerwitz had reasonable motivations. I feel like didn't necessarily add a ton, but had some memorable scenes. I think he was a pretty good addition to the show. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I'm glad to have a little bit of variety. I do think prayer was needed after all of the injuries, the doing crack, the solicitating women for sex, uh, for calling people gay racial slurs. I mean, prayer was definitely needed, so I'm glad we did arrive there. One other funny thing I, I had in my notes from the McConnell thing, 
Um, again, with the whole, it was like the writers were winking at you when they're like, how could all this stuff happen in the span of a halftime? And right when he says bye to her after being in the bowels of the stadium, he goes, yes, I got a game to play, huh? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I guess you do have a game to play. You should probably head back to the locker room. Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, I'm surprised. Like, I would not be in the most personable uh, lady chasing mood if I were McConnell. I just had my shoulder popped into place. Like, I, they must have gave him some Toradol or something in the mix, too, because, like, that's that's a tough one to come back and immediately be back to pussy hounding. And also, like, again, the whole thing about even uh, professional athletes, like spotting women and having someone go like make an introduction like that, that doesn't seem like a stretch. I I've even heard stories of that. I think that's real, but that would happen after the game. It's you meet me after the game. No one is doing that at halftime, especially when you're getting your shoulder popped in. Like I have had my shoulder dislocated and I am just trying to imagine the pain that I was in getting it readjusted then being like, you know what? Now I got to go meet that girl that I saw in the stands moments before I have to go play another game or play a second half where our team is down 21 to six. And I threw another interception in the first half, like McConnell, you need to get your head on straight, man. So who's not gonna be ready for those bubble screens is going to be McConnell. He's too busy. He's too busy worrying about the Italian restaurants. That he's going to bang a Z grade Cameron Diaz. I suppose let's give out our awards here. We got nine minutes left where we got to have a hard out. Uh, who has the most fantasy upside in the episode? I'm going to go to Gerwitz. I feel like it's going to be bubble screens in the offense now. Maybe gets those PPR numbers up. So uh, I just like having a new guy in the mix. DH on crack. Clearly going to be a force to be reckoned with. But I'll give Gerwitz the fantasy upside for the episode. Yeah, I think uh, Gerwitz, I think he has to be. Um, it's really hard to know who else would even be in consideration. Um, yeah. We know we know all they scored were six points in the first half. So honestly, Spags, it might be the kicker. It might be the kicker and uh, you know, Scott Fishbowl this year does include kickers. Let's just stretch it here. I'm, I'm going to go with the, the new kicker who came in and uh, displaced the other guy. Uh, the most unrealistic moment of the episode. Uh, boy, I'll throw it to you first. Cause I feel like there's enough here that could stand out. Yeah. Most unrealistic moment of the episode. It, it has to be the entire premise of the episode and all of this happening within <laughs> one, you know, basically 20 minute span. It, it is literally impossible. I'll I'll say that it's unrealistic that the girl who was uh, being picked out of the stands by the star quarterback wouldn't fall in love with the the gopher who was from the same town. I think we all know that's how love stories happen. As you talk about your old high school and a teacher who gave the students weed, and then the girl falls in love with you. So that's very unrealistic that didn't occur. Um, moment that made the NFL most mad. A lot to go with here. I I feel like it would be honestly given that's 23, it's probably not the gay slur one. I think it's probably more the the helping DH light crack so he can get back on the field. I think that would be the one that would tip them off the most. Yeah, knowing the NFL, the gay slur would be like the third thing. They're still on the crack things. They do not want the implication that you would be smoking crack during an NFL game at the stadium. The the NFL uh would be very angry about that. Um, the NFL happiest scene, uh, boy, I not a great episode for happy scenes. I think they would just cut to the part of them in the tunnel and Gerwitz giving DH the, the chain. And that'd be like, wow, interracial situation here. A white player giving a guy his chain. Like that's that's what the NFL is all about. Brotherhood on the field. So I think that's it. And they would just ignore the rest of the episode entirely. I, I, I think the happiest is the prayer. You know, the, the NFL still wants to align themselves as, you know, a kind of de facto Christian organization that appeals to the heart of America and those kind of sensibilities. And I think that prayer before going out on the field and giving it all to God would make uh, Roger Goodell cry. Asshole, the episode, uh, Steve Lyles, I think is a runaway winner here. 
yeah, Lyles with that, with what he came into the locker room and said, he's a, he's an easy winner for asshole. The episode cool bro moment, holding a lighter for your teammate doing crack. I feel like hard to top that one. That is basically soul bonding though. That is, that does overlap with the next award, which is teammate bonding of the episode. But again, just Gerwitz doing everything. You're running to get the crack. Uh, even if he doesn't respect the, the, the drug dealer himself, I feel like lots of cool bro moments from Ger, uh, bro moments from Gerwitz. I think cool bro moment for me is the, you know, assistant coach or whatever with the binoculars comping a, a girl to uh, Cameron Diaz. So that's super cool bro, mo- cool bro moment for me. Teammate bonding of the episode. Um, uh, since I gave the crack award away, I'll give away the little fist pound that old chick and Leon shared after they said it was a day of mix ups here. Sometimes you get mixed up about your domestic violence situations and Justin and your ACLs hair. So that's uh, too tough mix up here, but they were bonding pretty well. Had the fist pump teammate bonding of the episode. Yeah, no, obviously the, you know, two guys helping each other smoke crack, uh, I think is, is up there. Um, yeah, and, and he, I guess it's not technically teammate, but the assist for bringing the Cameron Diaz lookalike to McConnell. I mean, that was uh, a classic bit of uh, coach teammate bonding there. Best actor award. Um, I think for this one, I, I feel like you have to go to Gerwitz, but I, I'm kind of intrigued by Ray, the, the guy with the injured finger. Cause I do feel like he, I believed his conviction to want to play. So I'll give it to Ray. You know what? I'm going to go with Gregory, Leon's son, when he realizes that his dad was actually the one who hit his mom and that there wasn't a toy. Uh, And uh, that was it was a nice delivery by that, you know, five year old actor. Worst actor award. I'm going to give to the coach himself. I just feel like he doesn't. I don't feel like he's likable. I don't feel like he's actually got a spine. I don't have any of that. And I feel like the owner like seems like an owner, but the coach, I just don't like nothing with him ever rings true other than when he was pissing blood in the first episode. So I feel like for me, he's my worst actor. Yeah, he he continues to just be uh, not believable as a coach whatsoever. Uh, and again, part of it is the writing, like the lines they give him are doing so much heavy lifting for, for plot stuff as well. And like explaining how football works to people that he can't even um, have kind of a, a natural vibe to his character, but yeah, pretty bad actor. Let's see who else would be up there for me. Um, I don't know. I think Lyle's, is a little bit yeah. uh, for me, just like all the stuff with the like coaches fighting over the plays uh, was hard for me to believe. So I'll, I'll give Lyles uh, yeah. for today a bad coach is generally not the best actors on the show. Uh, the scene that wouldn't be on TV today, I think has to be Lyles coming in and yelling at Gaysler. That's just, there's no chance that there's a lot of things that wouldn't be on TV today. I think in this episode, but um, including grading the cup sizes in the crowd, if like that probably wouldn't pass, but um, you, you can't just yell at Gaysler as your introduction. Like that's like, imagine Kramer yelling at Gaysler coming in the scene on Seinfeld. It's not, it's not how you enter a room in any situation. Yeah, you know, this one always kind of dovetails with what would the NFL be the the or the most mad about. And so yeah, uh that line from him and and then the crack in the stadium. <laughs> Playmaker of the episode, uh it's I think Gerwitz is in the hunt for this, but um I think the fact too that he's getting things done in real life and on the field speaks to me, but Playmaker of the episode just has to be Jerome getting the crack over that fast. He's waiting outside ready to go, still defending the crack just in case Gerwitz is a, a cop. I don't know what he thought he would be a cop in a football uniform, but um Jerome, Playmaker of the episode great breakaway speed to get the crack where it needs to be. Yeah. What do they say about getting an NFL running back crack during the game? It takes a village. And so if I can split this between Gerwich and Jerome for making this happen, I, I think they were both the playmakers of the episode. All right. So there we go. That covers it. Pete, give the people the final plugs before we jump off. They should be following you at Peter Overzet, following me at Chris Spags and following at Splash Play Pod. But what else is coming up? 
Yeah, I'm doing another chess stream today at 4 p.m. Last week was like legitimately stressful and emotionally draining for me after doing it. Like the amount of pressure I feel to just like not watching. I've been meaning to. I haven't had enough downtime, but Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to get on the train of watching you suffer. You yeah, you don't need to, but it, it, it legitimately stresses me out because I don't want to seem like an idiot. Um, and I'm just terrified of constantly seeming like an idiot. And it just I saw an article today that like chess players burn six thousand calories, I think it said a match or a day. It had to have been a day. Um, a day, yeah, not a match. Um, uh, and just from the the stress uh and the mental, you know, kind of focus that goes into it. So I think last week I probably lost uh about a thousand calories in that match and during that show. And I will probably do it again today at four. That is, that seems impossible. That feels like that's propaganda from chess players, sexy chess players monthly. (laughs) (laughs) What's the hottest new diet playing (laughs) chess on the stream. You'll lose those extra love handles before you know it. It's a lot of photos of people holding chess boards over their crotches sex- sensually and uh, well-lit photography and sexy chess player monthly. We appreciate you guys for being here, though, and make sure to subscribe to the channel, Splash Play channel, Pete's channel, and we'll be back to you guys again very soon. So enjoy your weekends and bye.